They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunigs. From a new location, they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. I'm your host, Matt. My wife, Liz, is uh, taking the day off, and so in her place, we have uh, rough equivalents uh, to her. We have three individuals, uh, uh, experts, uh, uh, geniuses from Australia, uh, who are going to talk about the job guarantee. Uh, The first one... As David Sligar, who uh, worked as an economic advisor to labor politicians and the Treasury Department in Australia. We have Hugh Sturgis, who studied political economy at Sydney University and wrote his honors thesis on the job guarantee, which has been cited uh, a couple of times in various places of, by critics of the job guarantee. And then we have Michael Hiscox, who worked as an economic analysis previously, now works as a union organizer in the construction sector. Uh, before I throw it to them, uh, I wanted to give a brief outline of the JG for those who are unfamiliar. Um, I'm sure if you follow uh, this podcast and, and left politics generally, you probably have a good idea, but maybe some of you don't. So, you know, the basic gist of it is uh, there's supposed to be a program that the in the U.S. at least has its proposed that the federal government's going to put aside money and then municipalities or nonprofit organizations are supposed to provide jobs at the minimum wage to anyone who wants them. Um, and, you know, the devil is in the details, I guess, from there, but that's the basic gist of it. A lot of the ways they they like to sell this is uh, eliminate unemployment while producing important public sector goods. Uh, That's sort of the the selling point. And so uh, I've been very skeptical of this over the years, but there have been some recent developments in Australia that I thought uh, might be worth going into. So uh, I'll just just throw it to you guys. Uh, Maybe David seems to have been the most on the ball on this to just initially explain what's going on in Australia with the job guarantee, why has there been this explosion of activity, blog posts, tweets, uh, all the rest of it, uh, you know, all of a sudden from, from Australia on, on the job guarantee? Thanks, Matt. Um, so Australia figures in the job guarantee movement uh, foremost because we're home to Bill Mitchell, who is a heterodox economist who created an influential job guarantee policy, and he made it central to modern monetary theory or MMT. Uh, it, it tends to be MMT that dominates the job guarantee discourse in the USA and other Anglophone countries. Um, Bill Mitchell's blog is often credited as a leading influence in the movement. Um, as we'll see, politics are a bit of a mixed bag. 
on one hand, he identifies as a leftist, uh, but he also has some, frankly, pretty reactionary views. A core part of his philosophy is that a job guarantee would replace and abolish unemployment benefits. Uh, he uses language that people recognise as hostile to the welfare state, such as duty of duty to work, mutual obligation, which tends to have conservative connotations in Australia, but obligation on welfare recipients. He, he even describes job guarantee as a, a welfare-to-work scheme. Um, the welfare reform right tend to hear this kind of discourse and see some, some of them see in Mitchell a fellow traveller. And Mitchell tends to seek out these alliances and boast about them. Um, now, I've been pointing out these things online for a few months, and uh, the lefty JG supporters, job guarantee supporters, uh, tend to get uh, rather mad when you do that. Um, the response at first was just to refuse to believe it, um, e even though his writing is as clear as day on the matter or, you know, suggests that I was beating this up because, because I was actually the conservative one which who wanted to undermine full employment. Um, now, <laughs> the, the dramatic development over the past few months was, um, has been that Bill Mitchell is now collaborating in, in a formal way with a man called Noel Pearson. Um, Noel Pearson is maybe our highest profile welfare critic. Uh, he runs an influential NGO that promotes welfare, welfare to work reforms focused on Indigenous Australians. Um, Pearson himself is an Indigenous Australian. However, his views are generally not popular among most Indigenous leaders, uh, quite unpopular. Um, nevertheless, he is probably the largest platform because he tells the Conservative politicians and the Conservative press what they want to hear, which is, you know, blaming dire poverty in Indigenous Australia in part, at least in part on a culture of passive welfare dependency and he calls welfare poison. Now Mitchell, who, now Mitchell and Pearson are writing columns in the conservative press together and advising the conservative Australian Prime Minister to establish a job guarantee work scheme as part of a package that, again, abolishes unemployment benefits. In a video, they talk about their common ground, about how people aren't working because of welfare. Mitchell complains about progressive concerns with abolishing welfare, etc. Now, all of this seemed to con sort of confirm all our warnings about the job guarantee as a, as a competitor to and potential enemy of the welfare state. Led to a big online fight. Some left-leaning JG supporters still argued that Mitchell didn't actually want to abolish unemployment benefits it, it somewhat hilariously waded in himself to dunk <laughs> on his own supporters that was one of the weird things it, it, there was seemed a little brief moment in which it was like oh maybe he's doing this opportunistically maybe he you know he's found this guy noel pearson and he's you know he's he's found a little path to power and he but it, but if you read his blog and it's hard to read it because he writes so much and there are thousands and thousands of words every time he writes it but i've been reading this blog for years and you can find quotes from 3 4 years ago in which he's saying the same stuff and then like you mentioned once i'd say mostly it seemed to me american job guarantee advocates were kind of you know, waving it off. No, no, 
nah, nah, nah. He then went on another marathon spree of, I guess, is it three or is it now more blog posts? And when I, you know, those, that three may sound like a lot, but it's a thousand, three, four thousand words in each one of them, right? And just going dead on saying, no, 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 I'm dead serious about this and starts citing the Soviet parasite law and all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, he's now up to six, I think, last I checked, responses to my tweet thread, yeah. um, each of which are a couple of thousand words or more. I've stopped, um, ra- I've stopped rating him. I can't read all that. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, over the course of like a month, he writes almost a, like a medium-sized book on his website. It seems like it's four posts a week, Monday through Thursday. He gives himself Friday and the weekend off. Um, but each post is like 5,000 words. Another interesting part of that uh, was that a retreat position of some of the JG uh, advocates was when they lost the case on Mitchell unambiguously. And still, still to this day, there are some people who deny Mitchell wants to apologize <laughs> on appointment benefit. Someone said it to me today. And when I, showed, <laughs> when I showed him the tweet saying, well, here's where he says it, he sort of responds, well, you know, I don't speak for MMT and I'm not the voice of MMT and I don't know enough to continue. And I think yeah, this, this guy runs a podcast, yeah, an MMT podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, what do you what do you say to that? Yeah, but like, so a retreat position was to say, oh, but Mitchell is a loner in the discourse. Like every other, okay, he supports abolishing unemployment benefits, but every other major proponent. Uh, loves unemployment benefits he, he he waited in again to dunk on one of his own supporters to say no this is correct this is incorrect like eddie said most of the american or or at least it was a common position among the american um academic mm. advocates also do not believe in unemployment benefits and he right ex- right i think i think sorry well, i think one one bit of clar- clarification on that is in the U, uh, so Australia, and maybe this may be go, uh, jumping the gun a little bit on on the show plan, but uh, Australia has uh, something called the job seeker payment, right? Mm-hmm. Which used to be called the New Start allowance, which yeah, is yeah, an right. essentially an an infinite unemployment benefit. It's it's a low amount, but it, in theory, it could go for years and years and years. Um, the U.S. doesn't have anything like that. We have in normal times a benefit that runs anywhere from 13 to 26 weeks and then you're on your own um and so it seemed like mitchell's point was to say oh you know the americans uh, the american jgers uh, they like to play around and say they like unemployment benefits but that's because they don't really have them um in the sense that we do they have a little short bit of cash that you get right after you lose your job and then and then you're cut loose and that's what I'd like to see in Australia. <laughs> in fact, I remember in one of his old posts, he says, I would keep essentially uh, job seeker payment, but only for two weeks. Yeah. And then it would run out and you'd have to get on the JG. So. And I've seen Randy Ray even sort of say in some of these older articles, um, they sort of just avoid the whole topic now by just saying it will be voluntary. But um, he said before that, you know, well, you'll go on UI and then uh, unemployment insurance um, in the US and then, you know, that'll run out and then you'll have to go into the, the job guarantee. I mean, what other option would there be, really? You wouldn't have a choice. Yeah, I right. think Mitchell's Your point, other option would be no income. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I think Mitchell's point is fair enough that they're, when they're operating in a context that doesn't have uh, any 
scheme to prevent destitution after, you know, maybe three months. And they're offering their grand view of uh, unemployment and it doesn't include a change to that. I think it's fair to presume that they don't support mm. uh, unemployment benefits as we have them in Australia. Yeah, and, and, and to that point, I, I've tried to push them on it because it's interesting that the status quo welfare arrangement does seem to really affect how people engage this um, because if you if you already have this infinite unemployment benefit, then it becomes very clear when you're saying, oh, I'm going to make you work for that. Um, you know, maybe the benefit will be higher now and it'll be an inclusive social wage or whatever, but now you're going to have to work for that. It's very clear in that when that series of events that you're advocating what you call workfare or, you know, whatever, right? Uh, because you're taking a program and you're adding a work requirement to it and making it conditional upon it. But when you don't have it at all, when it doesn't even exist yet, as it does, uh, as in the US, people, I think, are a little bit more prone to being tricked by it or they're a little bit, it's a little bit harder for them to see, oh, no, you're advocating both the creation of what in a lot of countries is just a normal, like basic unemployment benefit, and then these really s- serious work requirements on top of it, because they're doing both of them simultaneously, they, you, you kind of are able to blow past the reality. Um, and so what I've tried to do is, in some cases, just ask them straight up, like, well, would you at least support, you know, a basic unemployment benefit where you don't have to do this, the job guarantee stuff? And I've not gotten a single one of the, you know, top five, six or whatever to commit to that um, at all. Uh, they just usually go silent when you say that. So I, I, I fully believe Bill Mitchell uh, when he says, uh, no, 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 they, they don't want that. They don't want essentially the equivalent of job seeker payment over in the US either. Um, not to mention some of their old statements, but, but yeah. This, this is a point I've sort of tried to, when different, like Dave said, it sort of progressed from, well, Bill Mitchell doesn't think that to okay, Bill Mitchell does think that, but he's by himself. There's no one else. And then it progresses again to, well, yes, Bill Mitchell says they believe, says they have the same views as him, but Bill Mitchell's wrong on that point as well. And I've sort of tried to ask these, you know, different people that have engaged me on Twitter. I've said, look, do you not think it's unusual that Bill Mitchell's made this comment that they agree with me? All these people are active on Twitter. They would see it or people would have pointed them to it. Is it not strange that they wouldn't have come out and said, well, no, I disagree with Bill Mitchell on that point. You know, in the Australian context, we should keep job seeker or unemployment benefits. Like, there must be a reason why they've decided to stay silent on this point. I mean, part of it is that, like, that um, one of the things that a lot of American JG supporters say is that Americans are uniquely uh, averse to welfare. They are uniquely obsessed with work. And therefore, this is the JG is like the only way that you can provide uh, support for unemployed people, whereas I mean, if it's if it's just a culturally specific thing, if Americans are uniquely mean people, why why would you advocate it for other countries? Why not just freely say, well, obviously Australians are uniquely you know are much are much kinder towards unemployed people. They're much bigger hearted people than Americans. Why not? Uh, you know, just go that that's a different that's a different country, different culture, and yet they don't do that. They act as if the JG is a universal thing. Yeah. All right, so that's been the the, the basic uh, the news in Australia. We'll, uh, we'll keep tabs, I guess, see if that's successful. I mean, what are the odds of? Uh, I don't know what the political situation there is right now. I know the the conservatives are are in control, but uh, you know, how how likely do you think it is that they'll do something like this? 
Uh, I th- I think it's not actually implausible that um, the Conservative Prime Minister could uh, establish some incredibly bad so-called job guarantee scheme. Um, uh, a Conservative Prime Minister, probably the most Conservative Prime Minister Australia's ever had, uh, Tony Abbott, um, talked about a job guarantee at one point in 2010 before being elected Prime Minister, of course. Uh, that was that was dropped in any meaningful way and it just turned into a, a tree planting and weeding scheme. The Green Army. The Green Army. And he had <laughs> work for the doll. Yeah. And he did try to abolish uh, unemployment benefits for youth uh, for six months. Uh, that was without any job as compensation. And they were meant to do the work, the mutual obligations for welfare for six months without getting a welfare benefit just to establish eligibility later. So and, and this is, by the way, Mitchell uh, pointed to, to this guy who was the man who created Australia's notorious um, workfare scheme, work for the doll, as a sympathiser. And he bemoaned, he bemoaned when he was moved on from employment minister because he thought he might be able to persuade him, he saw a fellow traveller, might be able to persuade him to implement a job guarantee. Um, so there is a history of being attracted to things of this nature among the Conservatives, history of trying to abolish unemployment benefits. And at the same time, now we have a big problem because some industries like fruit picking, um, have lost all their workforce. Uh, we have got what you call, Matt, super doll, where we've drastically, you know, we've effectively doubled our unemployment benefits. I could imagine, it's not probably balance of probability, but I could imagine them saying, okay, we'll keep this level of super doll if you move to pick our fruit mm. and, because uh, that's a huge problem right, right now. And, and, and we'll abolish it. We'll abolish it if you don't. Yeah, I, I, I could see something like that. I mean, it does seem like in, a, in other countries um, that are more attentive to managing their welfare states that little things like that, I wouldn't say little, but modifications like that seem not unlikely. Like, like, oh, we have a lot of unemployment right now. We need to mess around with the unemployment benefit, get people going. And so... If the window opens to mess around with the unemployment benefit because of the end of the pandemic or whatever, then and and this is what fills the window, then I could see that for sure. Um, the U.S. doesn't really ever change anything because we can't really get laws passed the way our system is set up. So, you know, so the, I think part of what might spur that along as well is that. Um, so we've had this, you know, the the super doll come in, but they're looking at. Um, well, they're not looking. They've said they're going to cut it in about two weeks or maybe even less, um, even though, you know, our second largest state is still in full lockdown, you know, people can't go to work, people, you know, even if people want jobs, they can't really do those. So you could definitely easily see a situation where they say, well, you know, there's all these jobs out in regional Australia. And we should point out the reason why people don't want to go to these jobs is because uh, they're horribly paid. Like they, they set up these sort of piece rate situations where, you'll get paid, you know, based off the amount of fruit you pick, which normally ends up below the minimum wage, even though legally it's not meant to. Um, They put them up in like horrid boarding and give them pretty rotten food 
And, you know, there's numerous cases of sexual harassment, bullying, um, these sort of things. So normally it's the only people that work in them are, you know, British and Irish backpackers that have to to keep their working visa uh, going. Um, very rarely is it that Australians go out there, but this pandemic might mean they get forced into it. And yeah, yeah, we, 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 ha- we have the same thing here, but uh, they just bring in South American workers to do it. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a scheme like that as well, I think, uh, Pacific Islanders. Um, and, of course, that's oh, it, it's mostly by um, foreign labour. And, of course, that's all stopped. So the farms are in a big problem. All right, so that's uh, you know that that that's the sort of a, a narrative uh, development of it in Australia. I want I wanted to take a step back and and talk about the the theory of job guarantee and the uh, uh, you know the the merits of the argument for it and that sort of thing because I uh, I feel like those have been very undertreated uh, in all the discourse. Uh, it, it seems to be uh, not not a whole lot of effort to critique it. Um, and it's been swallowed up by this other weird debate about basic income. And uh, so I, I wanted to kind of hone in on it. And, and the, 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 the phrase that uh, I've been reading recently to try to get the, all the claims in one short sentence uh, uh, was go something like this. Uh, the job guarantee will eliminate unemployment uh, while producing important public works. Um, and another phrase is, uh, you know, that it will, uh, it will, it's a way to eliminate unemployment without, uh, without causing inflation, full, full employment, uh, without wage price spirals, without, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I wanted to go first, David, what, I mean, what's going on when they're talking about full employment, eliminating unemployment, uh, we've defeated the Phillips curve, uh, no more wage price spirals, uh, you know, like on a macro level, what's the deal with that? Why, why, why do they talk about that? Is it true? You know, just, just, just go into that if you would. Yeah, I mean, in a sense it's true, but it's a very cute argument. Essentially, con- the conventional economic view is that um, to... Uh, maintain price stability to avoid problematic inflation uh you need to keep uh some share of the workforce unemployed uh in developed countries they're usually paid unemployment benefits now mmt makes the observation that you can attach work requirements to unemployment benefits or you can change the name call it something else call it a job guarantee for example and then they can meet a technical definition of employment. You tell your statistics agency to count them as employed. And as long as the payment, as long as their payment doesn't function like a conven- like in the manner of conventional employment where workers can bargain up their wage, as long as it's relatively fixed, like an income support payment, um, you, you'll, you'll keep inflation under wraps. And then they can declare that they have, as long as all, all workers can sign up to this work scheme, all unemployed workers can sign up to this work scheme, that they have achieved 0% involuntary unemployment. But, it, I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, it looks like a workfare scheme. Right. So, so uh, it's sort of uh, everyone who's uh, unemployed and on benefits... Uh, get them out doing whatever, raking leaves, painting fences. Now they're employed. Boom, 
unemployment solved, right? I mean, it seems like a it, it's a very amusing kind of a game. It seems like, right? It's I I I've pitched it in other ways of saying, uh, well, why don't we just say that in order to receive your unemployment benefit, you have to post an opinion online once a week. Um, that's a job. That's in fact my job. Um, <laughs> Takes the go. There you, there you go, and unemployment zero percent and of course they start rolling their eyes and that sort of thing but it's but it's it's essentially that right uh, and i think what what the th- thing i think is key about this particular point is because this is where they, where i think they've snowed a lot of lefties like socialists and that sort of thing is on the left we've had this long-standing interest in full employment especially coming from michael kalecki right uh the political aspects of full employment um, and it's an unfortunate situation, the same thing that frustrates me about everything, which is that language is getting in the way of, of comprehension here. Because if you actually read Kalecki's pamphlet on this, when he says full employment, he means uh, extremely tight labor markets. He means a situation where your employer can't really fire you because if they fire you, there's really no one that can replace you. Um, and he, and, you know, he's thinking about the way in which that's going to create this great revolution and, or at least, you know, you know, really benefit workers like that. That's sort of his, his thought on it. Um, eliminate replacement workers basically. Um, but the JG people, they, they, that's not what they're advocating. They, they, they specifically say in some of their writing, um, we want full employment with loose labor markets. The idea is not to eliminate replacement workers. The idea is not to make it hard for employers to go out and hire someone if you're uh, being quote-unquote obstinate or demanding super high wages or whatever. The idea is just to take that group of people, the reserve army of the unemployed, if you will, and put them in a little work scheme. And so if the, if the employer needs to go undercut someone or if you're on strike or whatever, they just go down to the JG office, they pull a worker off of, off of there instead of going down to the unemployment office and pulling a worker off there, right? I mean, that's, so, so no tight labor market is achieved, but, it's in it, but, but you could still call it full employment for the reasons you just gave, which then throws a lot of lefties off into confusion because they're like, wait a minute remember the p- political aspects of full employment mm. it's like we're, we're still using those words full and employment even though one refers to tight labor markets and the other refers to everyone is either in a job or on workfare mm. i mean is that is that a is that a fair assessment yeah and i think like now it sort of seems now that they seem to be more are trying to appeal to people on the left and you know it's sort of the jg sort of being presented as a socialist idea they uh, I think they sort of try to hide this point more and they, and they try to focus more on the job employment. But, you know, the scheme, the program hasn't really changed in its design over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and Randy Ray has made this point explicitly saying that, um, you know, the buffer stock of workers, it's going to be a restraining influence whether they're unemployed or JG employed because the JG employed workers, their wages are restrained. They can't bargain for their wages. It's just set. Well, in the American context, it seems by legislation. I mean, I imagine they might do something different in Australia just because wage law is unset like that here. Um, but he says, you know, there wouldn't be any difference in the influence. And I think later he even says, you know, maybe the JG workers would be even better restraining influence because, you know, they're, they're all in one place. We don't have the same sort of job match prop- problems you have with 
um, now. So they might even do a better job at uh, restraining wages and wage growth than we currently have. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. He, he specifically says, uh, uh, so, so yeah, I should uh, reiterate that this is supposed to be like the lowest payment in the country in terms of how much workers are receiving. So in that sense, you're always incentivized to take another job because all the jobs are going to pay more than, than this. Um, so you're always there, but the point he makes on that, which I thought I've presented this to people hundreds of times and, and the, the, the diehards will never believe you no matter how many times you like tweet this at them, uh, is he says, well, think about it. If you're on unemployment benefits, you know, you're receiving a certain amount, let's say 600 a week. Um, all right. Employer goes and tries to hire you. They got to kind of convince you, hey, come work for me. And you're like, eh, I don't know. I'm just relaxing, chilling, you know, watching watching TV, doing my hobbies. And they're like, no, come work for me. You know, it's a little bit difficult. You have to really convince them to pull pull them back back in. Uh, but if instead you go to that same person and they're having to get up each day and go rake leaves in the park and you know uh, do do community gardening or whatever, right? They're putting in eight eight long hours of tough work each day. Um, you go to them and you say, hey, come work for me. It's it's a much easier sell, right? Because it's like, well, shit, I got to get up anyways and do all this stuff every day. So so he actually says that that's going to make them more potent. They're going to be more eager to run into that labor market to get away from the, the JG than they were than they would be if they were on unemployment benefits. So so that, that so that makes them more more powerful as as a tool to undermine wage demands in the ordinary, you know, uh, private sector and public sector. Were you going to say something spin, here? The spin now from the you know, sort of the, the socialist, um, the socialist new um, advocates of JG is that work is uh, the work will be self-actualizing. That they'll they'll all want to do it. They'll be passionate about the work. It'll promote their health and and subjective well-being because they're exposed to the dignity of work, etc. It's just the Something that keeps coming up in the JG uh, movement are fundamentally contradictory claims are simultaneously made very regularly. I think that, that goes to an important point about, like, you know, we were talking about the macro uh, effects of the JG and can you get around the Phillips curve with the JG. The more it's like unemployment, like the more it's like um, if you want to get paid, you have to do this work, then the less self-actualizing it's going to be, the less... Uh, appealing it's going to be therefore like you know it, it that doesn't seem as appealing like as a, as a progressive policy but the more it is like a job the more it is self-actualizing the more it is um something that you'd want to do then the stickier it's going to be like people don't just think about their jobs purely in terms of what's going to pay me one cent more an hour there's a whole bunch of other things that go into it um there's some studies that think that about a third of the benefits of jobs uh, non-wage, they're related, like you know, sort of fringe benefits, um, location, those sort of intangible things. Uh, so the more it is like a job, then the less they, less confident they can be in saying that. Well, people will just move between the JG and regular employment, like they do between unemployment and employment. Right, right. So I think that gets us maybe to uh, to the to the next interesting aspect to this. Right, we go back to the slogan: eliminate unemployment and do important uh, public sector work. 
Uh, Hugh, I know you've done the most work on deconstructing the latter claim. Um, how is it that you're going to be able to do important work given uh, all the constraints that they've set up for this program? So maybe maybe you could uh, dive into that for a bit. Yeah, I think that I, mean, I think for the general public, speaking as someone who you know was quite interested and quite positive about the JG when I first heard about it, the appeal is that we solve the two like these two great problems at the same time we solve the issue that there are you know in australia hundreds of thousands of people who are unemployed in america millions of people unemployed uh who could be doing something uh they you know they're languishing in poverty and so on and that there's all this socially beneficial work that is obviously needing to be done in our schools and our hospitals and our you know child care centers uh understaffed and our infrastructure is degraded and all these other things that we everyone sees could be done and are not done. So the appeal of the job guarantee is claiming to solve these two problems. But when I was uh, kind of working on my thesis quite early on, what really got, what really prompted me to write about it in detail in a critical way was how these claims just in the end contradict each other. That, like you said, uh, Matt, that these are meant to be minimum wage jobs. These are meant to be jobs that are commensurate with the lowest wage in the economy. They're also meant to be uh, you know, a buffer stock, just like unemployment. People are meant to be moving between these jobs all the time in a very fluid way because otherwise they can't claim that they get around the Phillips curve. People uh, have to be able to be drawn out of the job guarantee just as easily as they're drawn out of unemployment. So the work they do essentially comes secondary to any other job in the economy that pays more. Yet they're also meant to be doing this incredibly socially beneficial work that can't go undone because that's kind of the nature of something being socially beneficial. They make these uh, appeals to people think, saying things like, we could, we could staff our childcare centers or we could um, you know, build that new light rail line that you want. Yet those sorts of things are very, you know, those, those sort of highly socially beneficial things can't be done by someone who is only there because there wasn't a job at McDonald's that day. And the, and the more socially beneficial they are, the harder it is to keep it separate from regular public sector employment or regular private sector employment. And yet one of the claims of the job guarantee is that it doesn't undercut wages in other parts of the economy because this is work that isn't done by anyone else. So these sort of, these sort of four claims can't be met at the same time as far as I can tell. And so in my thesis, I called that the impossible quadrilateral. I was hoping for a slightly more pleasing name than quadrilateral, but the impossible square <laughs> sounded, I don't know, sounded a bit hippie-ish. So yeah, I didn't do it, that it one. Remains, uh, it remains undefeated in the arcs. I've not seen a single... <laughs> yes, the closest I've seen is planting trees to you know stop climate change. Yeah, but, the Green Army. Yeah, exactly. Something like the Green Army. But there's... I mean... For one thing, stopping climate change is more important than whether there's a job at McDonald's, so it should be done permanently. And for another thing, it's when you're planting a tree, and this is talking about something very basic, like this is the thing, the kind of the most basic thing that a lot of job guarantee proponents can think of. It's not just a matter of you get like a seed or you get a sapling and chuck it in a hole in the ground and leave it. There's, that's, you, you know, that tree will die if you just leave it. So even that really basic requirement, something that even, you know, that Tony Abbott expected the unemployed to do uh, to get the dole is too much work for the job guarantee. So I just, 
I mean, as Michael says, to this day, I've yet to see anyone propose a job that is both or that manages to be simultaneously clearly socially beneficial, yet is commensurate with payment at the minimum wage that doesn't really need to be done and is also clearly separate from the rest of the public sector. The more you go towards one, the more you have to abandon another. Or the, or the private sector as well. Like they, yeah, they exactly. Say that, exactly. Know, the private sector should be excluded. What about take right. stock, Gov? Though, well, that could be the one. That could be the one thing to <laughs> I think. Matt Brunig has solved the impossible quadrilateral. That's true. I think this goes <laughs> to an interesting point. I think that that um, I know um, David and I have talked about quite a bit. Is that so many of these jobs are so retro, like they're really kind of like a nineteen fifties vision of the economy. And it really and Mitchell's a really good example of this because he talks about um, even though he's, I mean, he's not 90, 90 years old. He still talks about when he was a, when he was a lad. You could go down to the rail yards, and you know you just ask for the, to for some work for the day, and they give it to you. You'd carry some bolts around, or you know hold a shovel while someone moved coal somewhere or something, and you just did it for the day. And it was like a job guarantee, which is an unlimited supply of of manual labour for anyone who wanted it. And that's what he wants the job guarantee to be, kind of like the the rail yards of the 21st century. And you just see this run through so much JG discourse. It's all these very old-fashioned jobs like, um, you know, you could you could teach people how to sew or you could, um, you know, you could uh, um, build band, road. band dynamics. That's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so it's either really retro <laughs> things like, um, you know, um, uh, chopping down trees or, you know, um, uh, being a blacksmith, or it's these really kind of um, twee ideas, like you know, teach kids about band dynamics, or put on put on public performances of, of plays you've written and things like that. There's no, there seems to be no middle ground that actually describes the kind of jobs that people do in a service economy. It's sort of either manual labour, uh, you know, building building a new gate for the vicar, or it's teaching kids about band dynamics, however you do that for 35 hours a week. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I've run into this with some of the retro stuff because, you know, they like to be inspired by um, the Works Progress Administration in the U.S., which was not a job guarantee, uh, as they say it. And in that period, there was a lot of, uh, there was so much unemployment that you could, you know, you could bring in people from all sorts of backgrounds, whereas in a normal time, there's only a small percentage and they all have sort of similar characteristics, right? Um, but um, one of the things that they'll do is they'll point to like buildings and stuff and they'll say, look, the Works Progress Administration constructed this building. And then, you you know, I'll go to them and I'll say, but you understand that the way we construct buildings now is... Uh, very like it doesn't really employ that many people and you're using all this heavy machinery that requires and like you know credentials and and licensing and so on like you can't just operate a crane or you can't just operate in any number of these like really heavy duty things and you know some of them will just come back and say oh well you could teach them to do that and it's like well dude like these apprenticeships go years long like you, i don't know that you could just like you know do that and then at, at the furthest end some of them will say well we, why don't we just construct buildings using 1940s uh construction techniques <laughs> like if they if they could do it and you you know just give them like a trowel and a brick and like 
just have them go and build a building that way. Mm. And it's just like, that sounds, uh, I don't know, that sounds, you're really leaning into the punitive workfare at that point. (laughs) 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 I mean, those techniques, techniques would be explicitly prohibited in various safety legislation, at least in Australia, like the, the, our safety legislation is pretty clear. Like if you can find a safer way to do something, which includes things like, you know, musculoskeletal strain and all those sort of things, if there's a safer way to do it without risking that, you have to do it that way. So, you know, the approach of making something more backbreaking, I don't know if would necessarily be considered acceptable to most people. And the point is also like, I mean, this is, there's a lot of romanticization of the work programs from the New Deal um, on the left, particularly in America, but the point is that if, if you know, the, the kind of, um, if we were doing it now, we'd never go about it the way that the WPA was created. That, I mean, they, they weren't paid the minimum wage. They were actually paid below a, uh, a figure that the government said was like the minimum you could live on. They were actually only paid two-thirds of that. They were, they were primarily unskilled jobs when the majority of participants were skilled. So it was terrible job mismatch. Uh, they were used to replace local government workers. This was a big issue in uh, the kind of the um, evaluations of it that were done by Congress in the in the early 40s. In other words, it, we just wouldn't do the, those programs now. It was only done that way because it had never been done before. This was this, And it was in response to unemployment on a scale that hadn't been seen before and hasn't been seen since in the developed world. The, the romanticization of it is completely out of proportion with its impact when really they're among the least effective parts of the New Deal. They're nothing like Social Security or the minimum wage or, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, you know any number of other parts of the New Deal. That it's it's a complete it's a it's sort of a romanticization of a program that wasn't especially good at the time. I think this um, obsession with uh, the optics of a job it has to comport to um, certain prejudices about what a job looks like, which is old school manual labour, etc. I think that's that's quite significant because it. It, it highlights how much of this movement is about optics, um, the performance of work, um, the theatre of work, um, yet it can't actually... But some, yeah, you, think, you, you, put, you put up something like blogging to them and, it's almost, and that always makes them mad for some reason, even though that obviously is a real job. Um, but it's almost like they think that would make the idea look ridiculous. Mm. Um, it, you know, like takes.gov, uh, which which seems to be the best, like genuinely the best solution to the impossible quadrilateral, yet they'll reject it because it doesn't, it doesn't you know, meet the theatre of work. I think it's also the, um, they, the idea of social benefit is so slippery when they're talking about it. Like, you know, when it's talking about, like, you know, building a school, like, obviously, that's a very, you know, literally concrete idea of what social benefit is. When it gets into these sort of artsy things, even though they suggest things like, oh, you can put on cultural performances or plays or paint murals and that kind of thing, even though they suggest those things, the way in which those are socially beneficial get, it's much more kind of uh, foggy. And I think that blogging, because it's not even visual, it's not even done in front of people, it doesn't have the sheen of... um of respectability because you know uh, um, performances that's like that's the theater that's you know that's that's the, that's uh, that's art 
whereas a blog post about what you think about sport or you know a movie or something that's that's just a hobby that's not a job well i I think it kind of um i'm not saying this is all their views but i've definitely seen some of them make this comment is a, a lot of them seem to have this view um that unemployed people at least like this is what i've seen the australians one say a lot of them are just sort of you know young uh single men who are just at home you know gaming basically which is completely the opposite like i think the average person on job seek is like a a woman over the age of 40 um and i imagine like the, their idea is that oh well you know we can't have these people at home blogging that doesn't solve the problem you know we got to get them out of the house and you know to put it on culture shows and you know lifting bricks and, and doing all this sort of stuff i think it sort of plays into some of the stereotypes they have of who who is the unemployed in australia or anywhere really well i mean mitchell one of the most astonishing things that mitchell has said uh is uh in some of his presentations he's said that to him it doesn't matter what what the job guarantee workers do like they don't have to actually do anything beyond leave the house every morning so their kids can see them go to work and so their kids will be taught the value of work and even yeah. overlooking even overlooking you know the 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 nastiness of that idea like the idea that you know that that poverty and unemployment is caused by people learning things from their irresponsible parents even overlooking that i just would like to imagine i like to imagine the family where the parents would otherwise tell their child that being on the dole was great but when the government says you have to pretend to work to receive your benefits they never tell them that they always tell their kids i'm going off to to you know break some rocks or you know put on a play and their kids believe them they never tell them that they're just you know they're going to the jg office and they just read the paper for the day you know we we had that um when we uh uh, when they added work fair, or at least made work fair a possibility for municipalities to do uh, in our, what was aid to families for dependent children, and then became temporary assistance for needy families, which essentially a benefit for out of work single mothers. When they added work fair to that, that was a huge aspect of it was like, the kids are going to see their parents going to work, we're going to defeat the cycle of poverty, intergenerational poverty, etc. And I think it was about five years after they went really hard on this. There were studies that came out and they started looking at the children of parents who had to go on to work fair. And, you know, at that point, the children are now, you know, in their 20s or at least, you know, the older cohort. And they're able to see, you know, what's going on with the kids. And the kids, because some municipalities implemented work fair, some municipalities didn't. It was optional for localities. You could kind of do a nice little natural experiment. The kids whose parents had to go out into work fair, they did worse than the kids whose parents didn't. Um, and which, you know, is in that context seems to me in hindsight to be so obvious, at least, or at least like you should recognize that there's at least some trade-off when you're taking a single mother and saying, you know, she needs to now just sort of leave the kids alone all day. Um, Like there's got to be some kind of trade-off there. But I think what was happening in the U S context is it wasn't, it was both that they thought, Oh, well having them be sort of a role model of working is important, but also they just think that, that these people are bad parents. And so it was like, less time you spend with your kid the better since you're such a you know bad and messed up individual 
And it turned out, no, actually, if the parents uh, spend less time with the kids, it's it's actually detrimental to the children. Um, you know, it's a, a balance you have to strike, obviously, because we need to work and that kind of thing. But but that actually seemed to be one of the things that sort of unwound the program, at least a little bit, is when that started coming out and people were like, oh, all right, well, it seems to actually be making things worse for the next generation. Um but that's very interesting. You know, Warren Mosler also said something like that, though he wasn't talking about uh, uh, creating a nice role model for the kids about working. But he did say, uh, all this talk, uh, you know, all the discussion we just had for the last 20 minutes, you guys way missing the point. It doesn't matter what they do on the on the job guarantee. That's not the point. The point is not to produce anything useful. The point is to essentially demonstrate to a real employer that you're serious that's the point you know so an employer can look at this person and say well we have their attendance record we know that they get up and go to work we know that they're reliable they don't have absenteeism problems etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's a way of proving your metal for an employer uh who might hire you uh you know for a real job I think um, the, it's an interesting thing to to look at the job guarantee in the american context as being an outgrowth of clinton welfare reform because it's proposed first in America, really, in terms of like the kind of the MMT job guarantee with Ray and Moser and stuff in 97, 98. So right after welfare reform has happened in America. And it's it's kind of a product of that kind of triangulation with the idea that this is a way to have, have a welfare state that is nevertheless in keeping with um, prevailing ideas about, about the unemployed being idle and work shy. So it's kind of – and it also serves a kind of a um, – uh, an inflation fighting purpose so it's very in keeping with that you know, sort of post 70s post 80s attitude towards uh, the importance of fighting inflation it also has a bit of a kind of human capital aspect because the idea is that these workers don't lose their basic punctuality and so on so they're more productive when they go back to work it's it's really i think you know when particularly when clinton's original idea for, work, for workfare reform so welfare reform was uh you know abolishing welfare but replacing it with guaranteed jobs for people on welfare it's a it, the rebrand of it as this sort of anti-capitalist uh, liberatory kind of ubi art scheme is so recent and yet it seems to be it is it's taken over seems to taken over huge parts of the american left and is making these sort of inroads in australia too uh, yeah, i think that's a good point i think it's a good point about um they do kind of pitch it as everything to everybody. I hadn't really thought about like all the various audiences that they have, but you have both, uh, you know, we, we've solved the Phillips curve. So we kind of, uh, you know, please the macro people. Uh, we get full employment, 0% unemployment with no inflation. And then on the other end, we can go to the right and say, uh, we could solve this. So there's a conundrum between full employment and inflation, and we solve that. There's a conundrum between income support and uh, promoting work, we will we solve that. Um, and then there's this sort of conundrum from, uh, I don't know, maybe this one is less of a conundrum, but uh, around, uh, you know, getting people ready and trained and, and making sure that they, uh, you know, uh, are, have very, very good human capital and that sort of thing. We solve that. We, we solve all these various conundrums. Um, uh, at the same time, and of course, they don't really solve any any of them. Um, well, it's, sort of, yeah, it's the ultimate third way policy. <clears throat> like it's the it's the it's it's Blairism and Clintonism 
in it just sort of personified. It manages to uh, it tries to appeal to everyone. It um, it's you know it's uh, you know um, big hearted but hard headed. You know it's all those kind of buzzwords. Um, and it's it was sort of introduced. It was developed right as that kind of approach was kind of beginning to fall out of favor a bit. The idea of worrying about inflation all the time was was not something that was a major uh, political concern after the turn of the, the the century. So it's kind of it was developed the, at the very moment that style was uh, was beginning to look a bit tarnished. But we see Mitchell. Um, Mitchell is a really good example of this, uh, saying being all things to all people. He he tells he tells lefties that there'll be hippie jobs like surfing or uh, mural painting or my favourite was the band dynamics coach. But at the same time, he is uh, he's doing policy proposals with uh, welfare to work people like Noel Pearson, who is you know, very popular among conservatives. Tony Abbott, arch conservative. These guys, these guys are gonna are gonna say thanks for your idea on abolishing the doll, Bill Mitchell. We really like that one. All the hippie shit. Ah, yeah, we don't like that part so much. And. Warren Mosley sort of even leaned into this. He's, he likes to boast that, you know, this idea actually has the support of parts of uh, Breitbart, the economic editor for Breitbart. And um, at first I was a bit like, surely not, but this guy's actually written a few articles sort of saying, you know, like this job guarantee idea, I think it's got some merit, but, um, you know, all, all these lefties are sort of just saying, oh, they'll just do hippie shit. I mean, we can get them to just do stuff uh, people on the right like. Like we'll get them to work. At gun ranges or help with you know hunting tracks and stuff like that you even sort of suggested maybe we could get them to help build trump's wall which obviously runs into the same issues that people that we've pointed out um i think he even suggested you know we could just make them domestic servants to the rich like that could be a job guarantee job so um you know i guess it sort of goes and, and moser wasn't sort of like oh you know I, I don't agree with this he was just like yeah look my ideas have a lot of appeal across the spectrum altogether yeah, he boasts about it, yeah. and Bill Mitchell boasts about his uh, appeal to these sorts of characters. Mm. There doesn't seem to be any self-reflection at any of these points that if all these horribly right-wing uh, people that in the past have supported incredibly punitive measures to people who are unemployed, maybe something in my idea is uh, could be like appealing to them, but they sort of just seem to put it down to their own political genius and, and move on. But it is interesting in Australia, um, as you said earlier, it was in some ways an outgrowth of that third way welfare to, welfare to work movement. It's come full circle where a person, Noel Pearson, who was a critical player in the welfare reform, welfare to work measure in, in terms of Indigenous Australians, uh, has now jumped on board the job guarantee movement and the job guarantee for Noel Pearson performs a sort of convenient self-justifying task. It allows him to thread the needle between saying, oh, look, you know, I was right about the importance of work. I was right how, you know, the transformative power of work for intergenerational poverty and the destructiveness of intergenerational welfare with the fact that, like, Indigenous poverty has not improved. If anything, it's got even worse. And there is no, virtually no evidence of success and evidence of harm in most of, in, in 
most of Noel Pearson's agenda. Um, he can now say, well, I now, I've now realised the problem of structural unemployment. So I was right the whole time. I was just missing one little piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which is the job guarantee. So uh, to, to close it out, I wanted to um, go to you, Michael, and, and, and see, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a, we went over this a little bit earlier, but a description of how this fits in with the existing uh, Australian situation. I, I, I know I've seen some articles fly by about something called Pink Bat, which I have no idea what the hell that <laughs> refers to, but it seems to be a very important word or phrase in Australia. Maybe you could touch on that. And then and then, lastly, uh, I saw you tweeting the other day um, about a work fair in uh, New York City, the Giuliani uh, situation and what happened there, and I and I, I, you went into a much deeper dive than I ever have on on what happened in New York City with the unions and workfare, and I think that's very interesting as well. So maybe you could just kind of, you know, give give us the rundown on that on all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So as we touched on before, Australia has you know sort of uh, an unlimited unemployment benefit, um, but it's at a flat amount that doesn't take into account what your previous income was. Um, it's at a very low level, like if you're, say, a single, um, you're probably at about 50% below the poverty line. So, um, you know, it's not really enough to live off. Uh, but, you know, I guess people would say the upside is, well, it doesn't stop. So um, to, to qualify for it, you have to be um, over the age of 22, or people younger than that get a, a slightly different one, and below the, the pension age, which is around 66, I think, at the moment. Um, and you have to participate in what they call you know, mutual obligation, which for the first six months that you're on it, that'll involve uh, putting in applications for 20 jobs a month and doing at least one meeting with your job agency that, um, that's meant to be helping you find work, although they rarely do. Uh, but once that six-month period ends, you have to start meeting what they call activity requirements. And, and there's a few different ways you can do it, but the key sort of plank of that activity requirement is this program called Work for the Doll, uh, which the goal of that or, or what they sort of say is the goal is that they will place you with a not-for-profit or with a government agency um, and you'll be required to do work-like uh, activities. And um, the, the length of time you have to do that will vary based on how old you are, but for most people it's about, say, 50 hours a fortnight um, for six months of the year. Um, and, and the way that they describe it as sort of the benefits of it is that, you know, the idea is that it will help develop skills that employers want, you know, things like teamwork, communication, reliability. It's meant to increase the people's confidence in it. Um, and it's meant to help them get involved in the, the local community uh, and provide projects to the community that are of benefit to the community. Um, now, when this sort of job guarantee thing comes up with people that you know, aren't sort of, I guess, as familiar with discourse on it. The first in Australia, the first thing people always seem to say to me is, "Well, how is this different from work for the doll?" And I mean, good question. <laughs> the question—it's a hard one to answer. I mean, I guess if you took them at their best, sort of their best case, that um, you know, I guess they get more money. You can work for longer. That's sort of the benefit. But the the question about the money is purely just a policy decision that's set by the government. I mean, I know job guarantee advocates are pushing for minimum wage, but there's no reason necessarily to think it would be minimum wage. But it's also interesting, I think, to have a look at how um, 
the program has sort of progressed. I mean, it starts off in 97 under Tony Abbott, who, you know, later goes on to become prime minister and is an incredibly sort of punitive leader. Um, and he, uh, it's originally just for young people and has a lower hour requirement. And then as the years progress, it becomes more and more punitive. Um, Labor eventually gets elected and they sort of remove some of the more punitive elements of it. They make it voluntary. But then six years later, the Liberals get in. Tony Abbott's now Prime Minister. Um, and he really starts to ramp up the program even more so. So now it goes right up to the pension age. Um, the hours increase more and more. And the sort of work these people are doing, I mean, it's uh, it's generally in not-for-profits. Theoretically, it can be the government agencies, but it seems that most uh, of the unions in that you know, represent council workers or municipal workers have, you know, been pretty strict on saying that they don't think that would be appropriate. Um, and from general reports you read, like the Senate did an inquiry into it recently, the general reports you read is that most people are, um, they're not doing productive work. You know, you hear stories about people just showing up and just sitting around for hours. People show up and they get told, you know, just sweep outside and they finish sweeping and they just say, well, go sweep it again. Um, you know, people paint a handrail and the next day they sand it off and the next day they paint it again. Um, most of the experiences you hear people talk about is it's incredibly humiliating. It's incredibly de degrading. It, it doesn't align to the skills they have. It doesn't help me get another job. Um, and there's horrible cases of bullying and horrible cases of safety. I mean, four years ago, uh, an 18-year-old man who was involved in the program tragically died. Who, uh, he fell off the back of a trailer. Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bad program. It's a horribly expensive program as well. That's the funny thing. Like, in total in Australia, we pay about $10 billion to people in unemployment benefits. You know, this program in of itself costs a billion dollars. And, you know, on background, you know, unattributed sources, different liberal conservative MPs have sort of said, you know, we know this program's shit. We know it doesn't do anything, but it's good red meat for our base because, you know, the goal isn't to help people get it to work. The goal is to just treat unemployed people incredibly poorly and they're prepared to spend. Normally, you know, they're fairly fiscally conservative, but in this case, they're prepared to spend a billion dollars to do that. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Um, you know, it's uh, in, like in the US, they love to spend money on prisons and the police. <laughs> you know, the, the fiscal conservatism goes away when it when it when it's necessary to achieve some kind of uh, punitive function, it seems like, uh, on the right, at least. Um, but yeah, so what 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 happened with uh, Pink Bad? And maybe maybe maybe, da so maybe David was sharing th that, or that that was a that was a slightly different thing. So the Pink Bats was okay. part of the um, that was part of the stimulus package where they sort of uh, after the GFC they uh, brought in this program where people could get them installed. I I'm not sure if it was free, but it, it was incredibly subsidized at least. Um, which Pink obviously Bats, Pink Bats being insulation for your house. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, okay. I should have clarified that. <laughs> um, and uh, so, as you would imagine, there was a big rollout of people doing that, uh, doing taking up that work. Some of these people were somewhat skilled, some weren't. Um, but this this wasn't people in work for the doll. This was just, you know, anyone that wanted to do it. Um, I see. But it, it ended up being, you know, tragically, I guess, four people ended up dying as part of that program. And when I was reading through, I guess, some of the jobs, because they always – on the job guarantee, they always talk about, you know, well, this is how we're going to stop climate change. And when I read that, I knew there was going to be something in here about insulation. I just knew that that, that would be one of the ideas that would be in there. And, and sure enough, in one of Randy Ray's, I think they said, yep, we'll get insulation installed in low-income areas, which, 
again, obviously is a job people already do. Um, but you know, when not done correctly and without the correct training, it can also be incredibly dangerous, like you know, many jobs. Women well, part of the part of the um uh, the reason why I think it's relevant to the job guarantee is that a lot of the job guarantee people kind of say, Oh, well, like it's not that skilled, right? You just put this bit of foam in, in the roof and you know, how dangerous can that be? The reason why these four young people died it was because their employers thought that too. They were like, I think at least at least two of them were apprentices. They were very young. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them, uh, you know, the power wasn't switched off, so they when they hammered a nail into a cable, they were electrocuted. Um, there was issues with heat, of course, because you know the, it's very hot in Australia, so they they, um, they died of um, heat exhaustion. It, and, and their employers just assume it's an easy thing to do. It's government's cash. Uh, we'll just, I'll just send them up there, and it's all, you know, it's it's all easy. So a lot of when when we've raised this these issues with um, some uh, job guarantee supporters, including some Australian supporters who amazingly don't weren't anticipating a, that we'd bring up pink bats, they get very angry and say, "Well, that's like a conservative smear." That you know that the that the Labor government that brought in this this stimulus program uh, had blood on its hands. We're not saying that at all. It's like unfair to say that it was the government's fault that these people died. But it's their logic. It's the it's the JG supporters' logic that these jobs are basic skilled that you don't need any specialist training. You can just you know if someone turns up on the day, you can say please you know just put some pink bats in that lady's uh you know roof and that will and that will help us fight climate change and cut our electricity bills it's that logic that let those people let those young people die a very common thread seems to be a complete uh ignorance about what actually is involved in half of these jobs you know there seems to be a view of yep you just put people into a childcare center or you just put them into aged care or you just build social housing, there, there really seems to be a, a complete lack of understanding of the skills that you're acquired, like what actually goes into these jobs. It's sort of, they talk about, you know, oh, we'll, we'll just provide the training. I mean, some of this training lasts for years. So I don't know how that continues to work as a buffer stock if you have to do two, three or four years of training to, to do some of these roles. So that seems to be a, a common thread with all of the, the jobs, they, or many of the jobs they suggest. So Matt, just for context, this was one of the literally the most controversial political issues in a couple of decades in Australia. <laughs> yeah. We had the Prime Minister go to a Royal Commission, the Royal Commission over it, Prime Minister affronted court. Um, it, it, it is incredibly salient in Australia. So the moment someone would say, um, like Geneva, to say home insulation in Australia, it would just be ridiculed out of the park most most of them have stayed away from bringing it up um in general for that reason they sort of leave out that one uh that one example because it's just common sense at this point like that that this is not the sort of job that is safe enough for an untrained or poorly trained person to do because i mean these weren't just people grabbed off the street these were apprentices these were this was their job they were meant to be trained in this their employer was meant to be uh ensuring their safety uh, like just basic things like turning off the power or if it was too hot, you know, uh, not going up into the crawl space for hours. It's, I think it's just, it's such common sense now that, that uh, no one serious in Australia would suggest it, which is, why, which is why it's amazing to see, including some Australian supporters, but primarily people like, you know, Geneva and stuff, 
suggest this as a serious idea. And I think it sort of bleeds into a lot of the Green New Deal ideas where that, you know, mm. the job guarantee, we can employ millions of people insulating houses, like insulating houses to reduce electricity bills and, you know, reduce heat stress in hot countries and uh, cold stress in cold countries is a great idea. But it's, you know, even even trying a mass program where these were meant to be trained workers, people ended up dying. Mm. Um, right. And so uh, the thing I found, I guess, interesting about the, the work for the doll one, so that's obviously, um, that's sort of the extreme experience, I guess, with workfare. And that sort of, it seems like, you know, when you look at workfare programs around the world, they sort of go in one of two directions. There's either the direction of, you know, make work, they just do sort of meaningless, meaningless stuff, which is generally the Australian experience. They, they go to work for different charities or community groups and don't seem to do much. But um, there's obviously different experiences. And the New York one, I guess, was interesting to me because this looks like a very clear case where they're not doing make work. They're doing, you know, actual real work that anyone would look at and say, um, you know, this is a real job. Uh, but this sort of shows, I guess, the problem when it's not make work and it is a real job. That has other sort of negative effects as well. So um, the case I looked at was the, the the work experience program, WEP, in New York City, which um, I think Workfare existed prior to Giuliani, but it was at a much smaller smaller level. Um, yeah, that was a that 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 was a part of the 1996 welfare reform when we went from AFDC to TANF. Yeah. Um, that, that is what enabled him to really bring that in ramp it full, yeah. full bore. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think he gets elected in what, 94 or 95 and, and he comes in with, uh, you know, makes heaps of budget cuts. He sort of campaigns on this, reduces the staff sizes significantly. Um, and he talks about his workfare program where he says, you know, I'm going to turn the welfare office into a job center, which again is rhetoric that a lot of the job guarantee people use. Um, and he gets a pilot program of this approved uh, before I think the actual welfare reform goes through. I guess there was sort of a, a trial period. And he gets the municipal union to agree to it. Stanley Hill was the head of the, um, the union at the time. And, and originally they're doing stuff like, uh, you know, they're guarding schools or they're working in cafeterias. Um, but a key part of the agreement, I think it was formed, you know, as the union contract, was that uh, it would not replace any union jobs. And uh, the workers actually seemed like they were paid minimum wage, not, you know, directly to them, but they would, you know, work out what their total benefits were, divide that by the hourly minimum wage, and then, you know, whatever that is, you work that many hours. Um, so obviously the, the, the Clinton welfare reforms come through, um, and that allows him to sort of really ramp it up. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that there, there were these sort of promises that, well, they're not going to replace any union jobs. I mean, you read the reports in the New York Times, uh, different heads of services. I mean, the commissioner of the Department of General Services, who was, I think they look after the buildings and maintaining, he, he makes some comment like they're actually saving this agency because of all the cuts we've had. The similar co comments from people in the Parks Department. Um, but at this point, they've sort of maintained the illusion that, there's no actual replacement going on. There's just sort of an additionality that, you know, services that wouldn't other, otherwise been done. Um, but then in 96, the, the whole sort of thing reveals, I guess, what had really been happening, but in a more overt way where um, the, the Municipal Transit Authority, the MTA, I think that's what it's called, um, they yeah. put an offer to the Transit Workers Union where they say, you currently have 2,000 people, 2,000 members cleaning subways and carriages and things like that 
Um, we propose to you that we reduce that number by 500 and we make up for the difference in workfare participants or the WEP participants. Uh, and if you don't agree to this, then we're just going to outsource the whole contract altogether and then you'll have no members. And so, you know, the Transit Workers Union agrees to this. Um, there's, there was some sort of speculation. It goes to a vote and gets up. I've seen some sort of speculation that there was ballot stuffing involved in that, but it's a little bit hard to work that out. Um, and then people really start to freak out, like Stanley Hill, the head of the Municipal Workers Union, before he immediately sort of calls to a halt in the program. Um, the head of the Communications Working Union, he comes out and says, you know, there was a ruse before that Workfare was a training program, but you know, now we see what it really is. It's just indentured servitude. Um, and despite sort of all these calls for uh, to be halted, you know, Giuliani, I guess he, he's got to meet his requirements from um, the federal government to keep sort of pushing people into uh, keep pushing people into the into the program, and the program just continues to expand and expand. I mean, at one point, I saw it actually expanded to forty thousand workers, um, which you know there was one hundred twenty thousand municipal workers in total. So you know, an additional third of all of them. Um, and you sort of read about the impact it had on bargaining. I mean, during this period, they had a twenty-four month wage freeze. And I've seen a few of the union leaders sort of say at the time, they'll just say, well, you know, we've got this huge oversupply of free labour here um, and it's depressing wages. And our members are, are concerned to bargain because they know, well, there's someone just here to, to take my job. If, um, the you know, the if reserve that, army. Well, exactly. I mean, this is the thing. This is exactly how it's meant to play out. This is the actual goal of it. Um, and... You know, they, uh, the union eventually, the Stanley Hill and the, the Transit Workers Union, they end up getting rolled and they bring in, you know, sort of I guess a more, slightly more militant leadership comes in and um, they start, you know, putting in legal action and stuff like that against, against, uh, against the city for replacing uh, union jobs with workers, uh, with WEP participants. But, um, you know, the program, as far as I can tell, it still exists. I think it took – I was re read – an article the other day that said they were looking at bringing him back um, to the MTA. Oh, well, well, B B Bill de Blasio said he was going to eliminate it. Yeah. That's the last I read, but I, he's the current mayor. Uh, I don't know if he actually did, but he that was one of his promises was he was going to eliminate it um, and get people doing schooling or something like that. Yeah, I saw, I saw it was it, like it starts to reduce fairly significantly. So, uh, you know, I imagine some of this legal action and stuff like it was incredibly clear that they were just breaching um the previous agreement with the union that there was no sort of yeah well well and one one of the, one of the things is that the tanf law actually had written in the law that you could not replace existing uh public workers like that was a thing uh and, and you could read articles a little bit at the time where people like look at this law and there were lawsuits and whatever the rest of it which I, I always think is really interesting because it's not just that the union, you know, they had some sort of, you know, understanding agreement with the union, but it was theoretically written in law that you can't do this. But like conceptually, how do you prove? I mean, in, in the case of the transit workers, it's it's because they did it so out in the open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, you, we're going to cut 500 and replace it. But in other cases, how do you know who's being replaced and who if this is new? You know, it's it's well, it's not so clear. In, in the court case, this is one of the things that, um, you know, the city's lawyers argued was that, you know, we made these cuts before the workfare program. So how can you say we're replacing them? You know, we're, we already gutted services. But 
you know, one of the key, I guess, organizing right. tools for most public sector unions is when services get cut is you can go to the people and say, you know, maybe you don't care about me, but don't you care that, you know, the subway's uh, a mess now and the park's a mess and all these normal services you're used to seeing don't exist anymore. Um, but in this case, you have no mechanism to do that because the work is still getting done just at a much cheaper rate to the city. I mean, I, I read some interesting thing that um, previously, you know, different conservative think tanks in the city itself, there was this big move to try to privatise all these different parts of the, the city. Um, but as Workfare comes along, the movement completely dies because they were like, well, it's going to be way more expensive to privatise this because we'd have to pay private contractors more than what we have to pay um, the workfare. So that sort of completely died and it just ends up being, well, we'll just get people in the workfare program to to provide this for essentially for free or at least like a, you know, maybe a third of the minimum wage cost of the city. So people online get really mad if you describe it as this gigantic make work scheme. They say that's unfair and unfair characterization. But that's actually, in my view, that's actually the charitable version that they'd just be doing mate work. Because if they they could they may well do useful work and once they start doing useful work, they start to displace what should be properly uh, public servant jobs uh, with conventional public service. Well, and another thing... Laborites. Yeah, and, and another thing I guess that's... Imp- I guess one of the benefits other than... Like, in response to when, you know, we've often raised things like, why don't we just pay these people unemployment benefits that, you know, take them out of poverty... Um, the response of sort of being, you know, things like dignity and things like acceptance and all these sort of things. The case with some of these uh, people in the WEP program, you know, as you can imagine, no one, um, especially a unionised workforce, no one appreciates someone working right next to them, replacing, you know, potentially replacing their job or the jobs of people they work for at a much lower rate. You know, that's one of the things that generally I'd say angers unionised workers more than anything else. And there were plenty of cases of this happening exactly. Like a, there was various cases of bullying and harassment. There was one sort of fairly egregious case where um, I think they had there were some people in the WEP program working um, in WEP working at the sanitation department, and you know they had a, to- a toilet where they put a sign on it saying you know no WEP workers allowed in here. Um, so I think the idea that well this will give them respect and dignity is deeply mistaken. Yeah, yeah, either it'll be glorified work for the doll, which is disrespected and considered undignified, or they'll be replacing workers, which is disrespected and considered undignified. Yeah, well, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, I suppose. So, so you know, I will close it out because I don't want to go too long. But uh, you know, I guess I guess I should leave uh, maybe very briefly with uh, some alternatives and and my view. And I don't know if you guys sh- uh, share this entirely, but is uh, you know uh, all, all, all the things uh, that they want to solve, like the sort of menu of things where they're solving everything at once, uh, it should just be solved uh, discreetly in its own way, right? So you want to staff out the childcare centers. Let's hire child care workers in the in the ordinary way you want to make the parks cleaner well we have a parks department and give them a bigger budget have them hire more people in the ordinary way right we know how to hire people to do things for the public sector uh, let's just do that uh, and if you have people who are uh, unemployed uh, just give them an unemployment benefit and and if they want to do volunteer work you know you can coordinate that but there's no reason to make that conditional on the receipt of the benefit um, and you sort of go on down the 
line, right? Um, uh, that's sort of my sense of it. Just just blow this up. Like we sort of have solutions to these things um, that don't require uh, everything being thrown in uh, in one program, uh, which actually seems to be because it's all combined together worse than the alternatives um, and and ineffective and uh, you know just 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 not not a good good way to go um, that that's my sense of it but what what what, what would your guys' uh, ideas be on you know how to achieve some of these goals the sort of things that they say are good outcomes without uh, falling into what seems like a bit of a trap well it's kind of I mean like you say it's sort of I think it's common sense that you would want to come at these two different problems or like you know at least least two the issue of the kind of the poor state of the public realm and the number of unemployed people come at it or the problem of uh, the impacts of unemployment come at it with two different policies um, but I think that one of the like I mean to me the issue isn't that some people are sometimes unemployed the issue is whether they can get a job while they are unemployed it's the issue of long-term unemployment because we have unemployment benefits. We can increase, you know, we can have, we can keep super doll. We can uh, introduce uh, income replacement at a much higher level, at a more kind of Scandinavian level where people can lose their jobs and not be immediately threatened with, uh, you know, homelessness or food insecurity or any of those other things that happen in Australia where if you, if you lose your job and you don't have much in savings, you know, job seeker, the, the base rate of, of job seeker isn't going to be much help for you. Or, you know, it's not going to keep your head above water. Um, if the issue is long-term unemployment, then we can address long-term unemployment. Uh, I mean, just like a really basic thing. One of the big problems is that employers, of course, don't want to hire long-term unemployed people because they're, you know, they have patchy work histories. They have all these, the employers have all these worries about whether they're going to be reliable or not. They might have, you know, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, all these sorts of things. Um I think it's a pretty, just in terms of like a really small thing that could be done, uh, for instance, governments could uh, set aside a certain number of uh, positions to be, to be targeted at people with, uh, who, who have been long-term unemployed as kind of like um, training positions or sort of in the same way that we have disability-identified positions and Indigenous-identified positions, we could have a kind of affirmative action for, uh, for the long-term unemployed, which gets, which, which is, it's not a job guarantee. But that's a that's just one of that's a very simple, small thing that could be done without creating a you know thirty forty billion dollar workfare project. Yeah, I'd just add that one of the you, you don't want to do workfare because one of the harms of workfare study after study after study has shown it is that it uh, tends to lock in participants yeah. uh, because it disrupts job search and. The first thing that unemployed people, the thing that we want to promote is job search. Um, but I think you guys, on, on what we should do, I think you guys have hit the nail on the head. We know how to solve poverty. That's not that hard. Cash transfers. Increase the unemployment benefit. We don't need, what, do, what does this gigantic work scheme achieve in terms of the core goal? Um, we know we know how to improve. Uh, we have left um, programs for full employment that have not been implemented. We know how to um, get inequality, get equality through through cash transfers, also through conventional union pro union policy, pro worker policy. This is just 
the job guarantee is this extraordinary, gigantic distraction from what we know works. And sort of on the issue of kind of traditional Keynesian stimulus, um, I can imagine some job guarantee people looking at the the amount of kind of you know when we think of stimulus, we think of uh, building roads and bridges and um, and railways and that kind of thing. Australia's been doing a lot of that in the last five years, and it hasn't chipped away at unemployment a lot, primarily because it's so capital intensive now, and it's not the sort of thing that you just absorb random unemployed people into because the majority of the money goes towards tunnel boring machines and the rest of it. Um, where I mean, we haven't really had a, uh, a Keynesian stimulus approach that's targeted at where jobs actually are in a post-industrial service economy, in human services, in community services, and things like that. A Keynesian stimulus that was aimed at hiring, you know, a quarter of a million uh, admin workers into state and federal and local governments would have would you know the idea that that wouldn't work, uh, and we'd we'd have no choice but to do the job guarantee, do workfare at the minimum wage. Is just crazy. Like, I mean, why don't we? Why don't we try actually just simply expanding the public sector in the normal way? Uh, why don't we give that a go before we try uh, some untested plan that is basically designed to, you know, to avoid all the benefits of full employment? Hundred percent. All right. Yeah, the, the only thing I just add is, yeah, I, I very much see this as sort of like an American solution to an Australian problem. I mean, like, it seems like the welfare state's been stripped away so much in America. They might think, you know, well, this isn't this is the only option. You know, it's not a good option, but at least it gets some way to get money to these people. But you know, in Australia, the rate is quite low, but the the architecture of it isn't the worst in the world. All that has to happen is you need to raise the rate to a you know acceptable level to keep people out of poverty and index it appropriately. And there's calls right across the political spectrum for that. Like John Howard, who was a conservative government, has called for that. Various accounting firms, the business council, the business lobby have called for this. You know, there's, there's broad support for that idea. Um, and I think there's a significant risk that uh, the, the advocacy for job guarantee completely crowds out that idea and instead we just become focused with, well, let's create this this workfare scheme. All right. David Sliger, Michael Hiscox, Hugh Sturgis, thanks, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.